Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series, Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Rex Warner, and we'll be your hosts. We're excited to give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're happy to introduce today's guest, Tanya Brown Jamaco, Managing Director of Research at the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety in Richburg, South Carolina. Welcome, Tanya. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tanya, could you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in atmospheric science and how it influenced your educational path? Sure. I was a young child that grew up in Kansas and Oklahoma, so I was around a lot of different severe weather, thunderstorms, tornadoes, hail, things like that. So I had a a bit of a natural interest as a child. I I found the storms fascinating. I thought they were interesting. Um, But then my family moved. Um, My stepfather's in the Army, so we moved all over the place. Um, We moved to Hawaii Uh, when I was about 10 years old. And living there, we got uh, our first dose of hurricanes. Uh, Hurricane Aniki made landfall while we lived there on the islands, uh, which was an interesting thing. Um, But while we lived in Hawaii, my um, biological father back in Oklahoma, he lost his house to a tornado in that same time period. So um, those events together really kind of solidified atmospheric sciences in my mind as a place to, to learn more and, and really to try to make a difference in the world, um, helping people understand the damage that they can cause and what we can do to remedy that. Tanya, that huge loss must have been devastating to your father. Do you remember like what were his impressions or things he told you about his experience after that happened? Yeah, there's a couple of key things that stand out in my mind. One was he was actually home. Um, he had gotten off work. He was home. He felt like something wasn't quite right. I mean, he lived in you know Oklahoma forever. Um, so he felt like something wasn't quite right um, and he didn't feel safe in his home. So he got in his truck and went the half mile down the road to my grandparents' house where they had a, a storm cellar that he could get into. Um, so when he finally you know emerged from the cellar and went back home, that's when he found out that everything was gone. So oh. thankfully he he had the foresight and, and realized, you know, something something's not right here. I need to go ahead and seek shelter. And he took the actions to get to a much safer place. So that was good. Um, but after the event, um, he he and my stepmother lived with friends for about six months while um, their house was being rebuilt and they were getting all the insurance settled out. So they had a pretty major disruption in their lives. They moved in with um, friends, which they were grateful for, but those friends also had four kids. So it was a a pretty crammed house um, for that six month period. Yeah, that sounds like it would be a hectic situation to be in. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you were really interested in atmospheric science. And when you were in high school, did you decide or did you have uh, guidance counselors who kind of influenced you and let you know that there's actually a major out there for this and and you decided to major in those uh, in atmospheric science? So it was actually um, my high school boyfriend that suggested it. Um, You know, I always talked about whether I always paid attention. I always watched it. I always went outside when things were active. I didn't really think much about a career in it. I knew I was interested. Um, And he was the one who finally kind of said, 
why don't you just do that? Um, you know, everybody else is talking about career choices and he had a good sense of what he wanted to do. And I, I didn't really know. Um, and he said, why don't you do meteorology? And, and that was kind of it. <laughs> so it's funny now to think back that, you know, it was, it was a boyfriend, um, who I haven't talked to in 20 years who suggested it. <laughs> <laughs> and where did you end up going to school? Uh, I did my bachelor's at the University of Kansas. Uh, I mentioned that I was born in Kansas. Um, all my family still lives there with the exception of my parents and my uh, siblings. So um, I'd been around the area. I had a lot of family still in the area. Uh, I could get in-state tuition there because that was my family's home of record since uh, my stepdad was in the military. Um, so it was a really good fit for me. It was a small program um, and I was still relatively close to some family, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, even though I couldn't be near my immediate family. What opportunities at school in Kansas did you pursue, Tanya? besides the standard curriculum that you felt helped you in finding and securing a job in your profession? Uh, when I was a, a student, I think I think it was my junior year, um, I did an internship at the Weather Service in uh, Topeka, um, and that was a really nice experience. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. But I also realized at that point that day-to-day forecasting probably wasn't for me. I liked the severe weather um, things that we had to work through for a couple of events. And, and I enjoyed the atmosphere then, but the day-to-day operations um, just weren't quite for me. Um, so it it opened my eyes to think about what else could be possible within the profession. Uh, and that's when I really started thinking a lot more about the building damages side of things and really started to explore avenues in the engineering school. In addition to my atmospheric science studies, um, there was an option within our program to get a kind of a concentration in um, hydrology, uh, but it came out of the engineering school. So I got a chance to get into some of the fundamental engineering classes, and that really started to shape um, where I would eventually go, which these days I'm much more on the engineering side, um, but it is still a nice interaction of weather and buildings um, within my job. So I took my experience and I I almost made an opposite turn um, to, to try something else. So what was your first job in the field and and how did you end up where you are now? This is actually my first job. Um, I've been with IBHS for just over 10 years, uh, but I actually was an intern for them several years before that. As part of my PhD curriculum at Texas Tech, our program required students to do an offsite internship uh, for a full semester. Um, so I got a recommendation from some of the faculty members to, to go to this IBHS place. Um, back then it was a lot smaller and it, in, in some ways it was a, a different organization. Um, we didn't have the testing capabilities that we have now, but um, I made connection uh, with the, who was at the time the, the chief engineer there and, and he offered me a spot. So I moved to Tampa for a semester where the headquarters is located um, and worked with him on several different projects. Um, one of them was basically putting together a deployment process um, to do post-disaster investigations for hurricanes, which is something I had, had gotten into um, when I was at Texas Tech was disaster investigations. Uh, so I did that and I also worked on a study that used 
uh, remote sensing imagery, aerial imagery, following a fire to come up with kind of key characteristics and statistics uh, that helps understand why the fire burned where it did, why some homes were spared and others were not, um, based on the weather patterns as well. And I loved the work that I did as an intern. There's a couple projects that I was able to continue even after I went back to Texas to finish off my degree. So, so um, the chief engineer kept me on as a consultant for two additional years. By that time, they had raised the money to build uh, what is now our research center and had started the construction. So when I graduated from Texas Tech with my PhD in 2010, I went immediately to the job. I was one of the first seven staff at the research center in South Carolina. So I've really had a, a wonderful opportunity to shape where we've gone and, and what it looks like in the programs that we study at the research center. So it was an internship that led me to where I am now. If that's not a, a great plug for internships, I don't know what it is because you did one internship and you learned pretty quickly that this is not the job for me, which is great, a, a great reason to do an internship. And then the other one you did, you know, it got you a job. So um, very lucky. That's great. Yes, definitely. It's good to build those connections, get those experiences. Um, they obviously help you figure out, you know, what you do and, and don't like about a particular career. But the relationship building is almost one of the best things as well. So considering your internship was off campus and during semester, it sounds like it was full time. Is that correct, Tanya? Yes, it was. Yep. So I, I packed up and moved to Florida and, and I worked a regular shift just like everybody else, eight to five, um, Monday through Friday for a full semester. And do you think that was relatively unique at the time in colleges or in meteorology to have the opportunity to do an internship that wasn't just a couple hours, a couple days a week, but was actually essentially doing a job full time? Yes, I, I would say that most internships are, like you suggested, a few hours a week. Um, maybe they're on site, maybe they're remote. Uh, or I think some people have had opportunities in summer programs to, to get a little bit more of the full-time experience, but to have one during a, a traditional semester where you don't have any other classes and other responsibilities, just the internship. Um, I don't know of another program that does that at all, to be honest. That sounds like a really great opportunity that you were able to have. Uh, so now you are Managing Director of Research at the Insurance Institute, IBHS, and you were there when the research wing of IBHS was founded. So I want to ask you what a typical day on the job is like. And of course, what I think of is the dramatic thing, which is you're destroying houses every day and finding creative <laughs> ways to destroy them and then finding creative ways to make them more resilient to severe weather. But I'd like to hear it from you. So since I've been with the company for so long, my days have changed. When the facility first opened, there were only seven of us. Um, and we're trying to run this big $40 million facility. Um, so the first year that I was there was a lot of totally random stuff. Um, we needed to set up cubicle desks and make sure everybody had a phone line. So I installed phone lines in the cubicle desks. Um, I learned how to uh, operate a fork truck because 
we would get shipments of, you know, lumber and shingles and all these building materials and somebody had to unload it. So um, I did a lot of really random things in the beginning just because there were so few of us. Um, We all kind of did a little bit of everything. Um, But our staff has grown tremendously in the 10 years that I've been there. Um, So in my position now, um, you know, I'm I'm a manager, I'm, I'm an administrator. So a lot of my day is consumed with meetings, coaching of staff, budgets, um, project planning, relationships with our founding member companies, our, our funding agency, basically. Um, I have a team of scientists that uh, that work with me and, and help do a little bit more of the, the science that I used to do. Um, that's not to say I still don't do some science. I do. I have a couple of key projects that I oversee and manage. Um, but every day is really different. Um, There are still days when I could spend six or seven hours just working on samples in the laboratory. Um, I'm usually not the one that does the testing anymore. Um, So so my biggest focus is on um, hail and wind testing. I'm not the one pushing the button to fire the hail shot or pushing the button to make the wind run anymore. There's there's other people on the staff that do those, those kinds of things. But there are days when I could be spending six or seven hours with the samples that we've just tested to understand how they've been damaged, um, you know, what some of the the patterns are showing. There's, you know, days when I'm spending a lot of time working on reports and analysis. Um, I'm also uh, highly involved in what will become the next version of the enhanced Fujita scale, uh, plus a couple of other methods that we're working on to estimate wind speeds from tornadoes and other storms. Um, I, I chair the EF scale committee that's that's part of that standard making process. Um, so I spend a lot of time uh, looking at new versions of DIs for the Fujita scale or the, the EF scale. Um, so it's one of the things I like most about the job is that it's highly varied. I get to spend a lot of time with a lot of cool researchers who do really interesting things. Um, I spend time with manufacturers of products trying to help them understand how they perform and, and where they could do better. Uh, I spend a lot of time with our member insurance companies, helping them understand how they could help communities reduce their risk and better underwrite. Um, so I, I really mostly enjoy the variety. So you started out with seven people essentially running a small business in the sense that, you know, you were doing a lot of the DIY work yourself, albeit a small business with a $40 million budget. How much uh, has the staff grown? Can you share a number of what you're at now and maybe like how that compares to the budget you're operating now? So the $40 million investment was just the facility construction. That's that's not our operating budget. We, we have an annual budget that allows us to you know pay the salaries, um, buy the materials that we actually need to test. Um, that was just the capital cost oh, to sure. bring that research center up, up and running. Um, back then, there was probably about 25 people or so in our headquarters in Tampa. Um, so that included engineers, people specializing in communications, um, membership, uh, the typical HR functions, you know, finance, things like that. There's about 25 of those folks in um, the Tampa headquarters, and there were seven of us at the lab, um, which included um, two researchers, me and one other guy, um, the research director, who's who's still my boss to this point. Um, we've just all moved up along the path. Um, 
We had a machine shop operator, um, kind of a construction crew runner, except he was the only guy on the crew. So really he did most of the construction uh, unless he tapped the rest of us. Um, And the administrative assistant, that was it. So it was uh, very small. Again, we had to do all kinds of things. Um, I think at this point, we probably have almost 30 people on site at the facility in South Carolina. So we are bigger than the Tampa campus now. That that campus has actually gotten a little bit smaller. Um, and we have some people that work remote as well. So all in, we've got just over 60 people on staff at IBHS versus the 25 that were in place before the lab was constructed. Wow. So it is a relatively small company altogether. Yes. That's interesting to hear. Yep. So you mentioned you really like the variety in your job. Is there anything else in particular that you like most? Um, well, we're a little bit different um, in, in terms of how we operate compared to what probably most people would be used to. As a researcher in academia, you're out hounding for grants to try to fund your research. Um, I mentioned we have an operating budget. Now, obviously, we have to keep our members satisfied so that they'll continue to pay their dues every year. But we don't go out hounding for specific project funds. We use our operating budget to um, plan out the best projects we can possibly do. We take our members' input, um, use our expertise to, to kind of see where the gaps are, um, places that we can help fill in information and get a better understanding, uh, and we just go. So we have a little bit more um, flexibility and ability to move very quickly because we're not going through the grant proposal process. We just decide we wanna do something, get the members to to agree that it's a good idea, and we just go. Um, we already have the money, we just allocate it and start moving. So that's, that's kind of a nice uh, part of the job that we don't have to worry about. We, we just go when we're ready. So you mentioned um, you have members, like who would be a member? Would it be engineers or would it be like city planners? Who, who would be a member of your organization? We are fully funded by the insurance industry. So our members are the major insurance companies uh, in the U.S., both commercial and residential. So think your your all states, your state farms, your um, Liberty Mutuals, you know, all the all the car commercials. Those same companies insure properties. Those are our members. We've got about um, I think it's about eighty percent of the residential insurers in the U.S. are members of IBHS, and about sixty percent of the commercial insurers are members. So they are basically making an investment in us um, so that we can do the research that we do, use the programs that we create as a result to improve the way buildings are built, and they're banking on that ultimately meaning less damages when there's uh, you know a hurricane, a tornado, whatever the case may be. Right. Less claims. Mm-hmm. Yep, less claims. So if they have less claims, they're they're paying out less um, as a result. So it's it's an interesting model, um, but they believe very strongly in the work that we're doing to try to make the world a better place, which has a benefit of of potentially helping them save money. Tanya, do you have any insight into? Did it take a bit for these insurance companies since they were founded and became kind of an institution in uh, the U.S.? Did it take a while for them to realize? we need to come together and create something like IBHS? Or was it kind of this very like collegial initial thought, like we're, you know, we're creating these companies, we want to insure people, we want them to understand what's being insured and how it can be as safe as possible. Do you have any idea of what that history was like? I know a little bit, um, and mainly again from the internship working in in the headquarters, 
you know, I, I ended up with a, a handful of tasks that were kind of help us organize some papers. So I, I ran into some history as, as part of that. Um, IBHS had, has been known by a couple of different names um, in its history. It was actually founded in the 1970s as the Insurance Institute for Property Loss Reduction. Um, in that period of time, it was really more of a, a, a committee than um, a, a true organization, but it was the insurance industry representatives kind of coming together saying, hey, if, if we, um, you know, we all have a need to help reduce damages, it's in all of our best interests, shouldn't we organize and, and try to do something about this? Um, so they did that in the 1970s and actually incorporated the organization in the state of Illinois. Um, I have no idea if we ever even had an office in Illinois. Um, nobody who, who worked uh, for IBHS back then is, is still around. Um, but it went through a couple of different phases. At one point, it was located in Boston um, under the name Institute for Business and Home Safety. Um, in the early 2000s, it moved to, to Tampa. Um, the membership has grown tremendously since the 1970s, and obviously the funding ability um, has grown tremendously as well. You know, again, we started from kind of a committee formation um, to now having a full-time staff of 60 over two campuses with this uh, wonderful $40 million facility. So um, they did recognize several decades ago that something could and should be done, and they they would be best able to do that by using um, an industry organization as opposed to each company trying to attack it themselves. What are some of the biggest challenges you face in your research? Uh, to some degree, it, it might depend a little bit on the peril. Um, the, the wind hazard was easier for us to get started um, at the research center. We, we had the fans. There's a lot of wind engineering expertise and knowledge out there in the field uh, about how to test buildings against wind. Um, the same was not necessarily true in the hail space. Um, there's some standard test methods that are out there, but nothing really replicated the true threat of hail. Um, so early on, when we opened the facility, you know, I was asked to attack this hail problem and help understand why buildings were being damaged and what we could do about it. Um, I didn't have a sink. I didn't have a freezer. I didn't have water in the lab. <laughs> um, so that makes it hard to make hail, huh? It, it makes it really hard, yeah. Water is kind of a key ingredient. Um, <laughs> so it just, it, it took us a long time to be able to stand up the capabilities and, and honestly to figure out what the heck we were doing. We knew some of the things that we needed to try to mimic to make uh, a testing program that was much better, but there was a lot of things we didn't know. We, we launched a hail field study in 2012 that really was designed to go out and capture characteristics of individual hailstones. Um, if you look at the literature about hail, you'll always see it referred to as hard, soft, slushy, but there was never any information about what that meant, like what, what quantity means hard, what quantity means soft. We had no idea. So we had to actually get that data. But in order to do that, we also had to invent an instrument to be able to capture that information. So I think a lot of times, um, some of the biggest challenges that we faced is that we want to do something, we know what it is that we want to do, but the tools and capabilities to actually do it don't exist yet. So we have to create them or invent them or build them from scratch. And that's true with so many of the projects that we do at IBHS. Um, we actually just hired a new staff member this week um, as a prototype engineer. And that's kind of his 
his whole role is, you know, I, as a scientist, I, I know I want to do X doesn't mean I have the mechanical know-how to build whatever piece of gadgetry to do that. Right. So we're expanding the team to, to try to help that a bit. Um, that's probably the biggest challenge that we face, um, which means it's slow too. You know, there's no calling up Walmart or Lowe's and saying, I want, you know, a doohickey to crush hailstones to tell me the hardest. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Um, so it, it makes us a little bit slow. Um, it took us nine years to basically start from no water and no freezers in the hail lab to something where we have a brand new test method um, that's respected by manufacturers of roofing products, um, which you know, on the one hand, I'm like, wow, it only took us nine years. And then as, you know, the person day-to-day working on it, it's like, wow, for nine years, we worked on this one thing. (laughs) So. (laughs) Is there a next frontier for research that you're interested in or that the insurance industry is is excited about, like fires or floods or electricity or whatnot? So fire is probably the one that's getting the most new attention right now. Um, and that's because uh, it's in the past you know, three, four years in particular, um, the number of houses that we're losing to wildfires uh, is going up. Um, you know, five, 10 years ago, as you look at individual fires, you know, maybe you're losing a couple hundred houses, which to be clear is a terrible tragedy for the people that live in those hundreds of houses. But as, as you think about the impact on our country and on communities and on the insurance industry and FEMA and all these other groups, um, you know, fires just didn't have the same building counts and severities that a hurricane would have. I mean, hurricanes affect you know, thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of homes um, and fire just didn't have that kind of a reach. But we've had a couple of significant events over the last uh, really two, three years um, that have started to shift that tide a little bit. We've had individual fires um, that are taking out, you know, over a thousand homes, 2000 homes, um, fire spreading into places that were not thought to be a high risk zone. Um, I think as everybody thought about wildfires in the past, they really focused on the wildland urban interface. So right where um, communities butt up to um, the wildland areas. But we've seen a lot of instances of wildfires moving through suburban communities where the houses are closely spaced and it just spreads, um, you know, pun intended like a wildfire, um, it's easy to spread in those communities. So the fact that it's getting into those communities and starting means that the impact can be a lot bigger from a structural loss standpoint, just because they're so much more densely packed in those areas. Um, So fire is definitely something that has the attention of our membership as well as us as researchers. We, um, We put out a product this year that we called the Suburban Adaptation Roadmaps, and they were specifically intended to help building owners, insurers, legislators recognize um, the parts of a, of a house in a suburban neighborhood that um, are vulnerable to fire, how you can assess how vulnerable they are and what you can do to make a change to make it less vulnerable. Um, that was a huge undertaking for us, um, but one that was really important to help us start communicating the threat has moved beyond the wildland interface and really is now getting into the places where our, our people live and work. What would be one of the things that would make a home uh, less vulnerable to fire? One of the big areas that we focus on is called defensible space. It's basically the landscaping 
directly around your home. So in the area that's closest to your house, if you think about a, a typical suburban house, right next to your house, you're likely to have shrubs and mulch. Mm-hmm. Those are not necessarily good things for wildfire risk. Um, if if you get a little bit of flame or you get some flying embers that deposit in that pile of mulch or against those shrubs and those things catch fire, it can easily catch the building next to it on fire. So one of the things that we recommend is using a defensible space where you have very little uh, or no combustible materials within five feet of the house. So this is not saying that you can't have... Um, any shrubs or, or any mulch, choose rock mulch instead of um, you know pine straw or bark mulch. Um, there are certain plant types that are less prone to catching on fire than others, so you would want to use those kind. Uh, and as you get further away from the house, um, you know you can start to introduce trees and things like that. But there are specific guidances that you can do to make your house still look nice, a, a pleasing environment, but without having the risk stacked so close. A lot of things about reducing wildfire risk are really just in manual labor efforts, cleaning up, making sure there's not debris um, in your gutters. Leaves and yeah, lots of leaves. Yep. yep, all that stuff. We don't want it on your roof. You don't want it in your gutters. You don't want it up next to your fence if it's a combustible fence. Um, fences are actually one of the easy examples to talk about from a mitigation standpoint. Um, if you have a wood privacy fence around your, your house, there is some risk associated with that. Um, but one of the practices that we would say to take is we're not saying you have to go replace your entire wood fence, but what if you replaced the the five or 10 foot section at the corner that butts up to your house right next to the wall? Why don't you make that a metal gate instead? So you're getting the, the wooden combustible part to not touch your house anymore. Hmm. Um, just giving yourself a, you know, a five foot gate buffer, that can make a huge difference in fire spreading to your house if the fence was to catch on fire. So... Little things like that can make a big difference. It's thinking in terms of looking at everything critically and thinking, will this burn and how much? And then thinking, is this a barrier or is this a route for the fire to spread? Yes, we want to cut down the routes um, and and introduce breaks um, or, or stops to stop the fire from spreading closer to the house. So Tanya, you also serve on the hurricane research team at Texas Tech University. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, That's a program I've been involved with for a long time, although I'm uh, not as involved as I as I used to be. I started when I was a student, um, and the idea with the the program or the team um, was to take wind sensing uh, and other instrumentation and put it in front of landfalling hurricanes to collect data where we just don't really get a lot of data. Um, the hurricane research team was founded in 1998 uh, by the director, John Schrader. Um, and at that time, he had one very tall 10-meter tower that he would go and put uh, in front of hurricanes and, and collect measurements. But uh, since that time period, and really as, as I was a student at Texas Tech, we changed the fleet up. So instead of having the single large towers or two or three large towers, we switched the concept over to the platform that's now called StickNet. They're basically engineering tripods, um, so a couple feet tall. Um, actually, I think they're 2.25 meters. Um, 
and you can have a lot more of them because they're small, they're maneuverable. You can put a whole bunch into a trailer as opposed to pulling a 10 meter tower on a trailer. You only get one shot. Um, but with the tripods, um, the engineering tripods, we had 24 platforms when I was a student broken up between two different trailers. So we could split the teams up and, and we would basically just canvas an area um, before landfall based on the forecast track, uh, taking into account elevation, surge potential, things like that. Um, and we'd set them out and then we would move out of the way, let the storm come through and we'd go back and pick them up. Um, I started with the team in 2008 with Hurricane Dolly on the Texas coast. Um, 2008 was a pretty active season for us. We also had um, Gustav uh, and Ike that year. Ike was kind of our big one. Um, so we were on the road an awful lot. And I'm ultimately a, a field kind of person, I think. Um, you know, I started in Texas Tech with damage assessments uh, after tornadoes and hurricanes, but I expanded um, to include the active weather assessments as well. Um, so we use the same platforms uh, for Vortex 2. That was our contribution to Vortex 2. Um, but after I graduated uh, from Texas Tech, um, there was, you know, a lack of, of personnel that had the experience to be able to to do the deployment safely and make the most of them and, and collect the data. Um, so I actually um, was offered a chance to, to be um, an unpaid faculty member, uh, which basically just means I can still participate with the team and I can still drive the trucks um, and use the facilities uh, so that when when they need us, if, if they're short staffed, um, if they don't have good expertise because they're using a lot of student labor, which obviously turns over, um, there would still be some of us who who really have a lot of experience uh, making sure that we're making smart deployments, safe deployments, um, can be able to, to put things, um, you know, out in a network that makes sense and optimizes the opportunities. Um, so I've been in that position for, um, you know, since I graduated in 2010. I have not done a deployment uh, since 2011. Uh, my husband, Ian, um, has, has been able to be a bit more active and has gone out on multiple deployments with them in the last couple of years. Um, but now that we have a child, um, one of us has to stay home and it's it's usually me um, so lately what we've been doing in those events is he'll go out with Texas Tech and collect the wind data and I'll go out afterwards and do the damage assessment side if, if that's what we need to do. So since your your research is focused so much on severe weather impacts what has been the most expensive weather event that you know of concerning loss of property? Oh good question um I don't know. I, I can probably name off a handful of, of pretty bad ones. I don't know if I know off the top of my head what one of the most expensive ones. Give us like the, the top five best of, or should we say worst <laughs> worst of, not yeah. best of. Um, well, I got to believe um, Hurricane Sandy is probably in there, just given the, the densely packed areas that it affected in the Northeast. That one's probably in there. Um... What about Harvey? Uh, Harvey, th that's possible. Um, Harvey was one that I, I did an investigation of myself, and it was a fascinating storm. Um, I think the thing that maybe wouldn't tip it to that level might be that the, um, the higher wind speed side of the track, um, so the, the onshore side, made landfall over a wildlife refuge as opposed to uh, a built area. Um, but there was still a lot of damage on the, on the other side, on the 
western side of the storm. So that one might be up there. Maria is probably up there, um, even though a large portion of the losses were in um, the Caribbean and Puerto Rico. I, I still think um, that probably is one of the highest U.S. ones. I was going to say, we hear, we heard so much about Katrina, but I don't know if if that compares to any of the more recent ones. Yeah, I think I think Katrina probably is not in the top five anymore. Um, this is something I might I'm gonna have to go pull all the data once once I hang up with you guys. <laughs> no, <laughs> so you're I interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but a couple. I, I'll I'll just name a couple of other notable things. Um, they may or may not be top ten, but um, there was a, a set of hailstorms. Um, I want to say this was 2014, I could be wrong, um, in the San Antonio area um, where there was major, major damage, one of the most costly hailstorms that we've really ever seen. Um, So that was a big one. Um, I mentioned that fires are starting to get uh, some more attention. The campfire um, from 2018 uh, in Paradise, California. That one was extremely costly just because it wiped out um, the overwhelming majority of the town. Um, so, you know, there's a, a lot of different individual events. The derecho from this year um, through the Central Plains uh, that had big impacts in uh, Iowa and other places, that one um, was probably fairly costly just because it was so big. Um, you know, regardless of what the exact ranking is, um, it's it's clear that we're in a place that we're going to get hit by these billion dollar disasters multiple times a year, regardless of where you live, something is always at risk. So, um, you know, our, our stance in that is let's figure out how we can be best prepared to give it the least amount of impact possible. Right. Cause mother nature can be unkind. Mm-hmm. I think fires are interesting because, you know, Kelly used the phrase, uh, weather event, which I know has kind of a specific meaning to it. And so, for instance, the campfire is one event, but the wildfires are kind of this systemic condition that, for instance, California is going through. And so it's not just one event, but it's almost this whole season. Yes. Do you have any insight into you know how you look at wildfires, in that they're not like a hurricane where they they're coming, they make landfall, and then they're over but they're kind of this like just roiling chaos. <laughs> yeah, so um, fire is a, a, a complex one. Generally speaking, um, there are individual named incidents. Um, sometimes incidents will merge together if, if a couple of different fires combine, um, but they're usually referred to as incidents in the, um, the fire community speak. Um, we have a, a couple of fire researchers, one of whom um, was a fire protection engineer. So, so these are the kind of words I hear him using. So I'm going to try to, to mimic him here. Um, <laughs> but when you get these, um, these multiple incidents that are all happening in close proximity at the same time, it gets, it gets a little complicated because there's also um, the question of who has, you know, jurisdiction over it. Is it, um, you know, national forest land? Is it the local municipality? Is it the state? Is it, you know, the county? Um, 
that's where I think it gets a little complicated. So even as you think about the messaging surrounding fires, um, it's it's hard if you follow social media to try to sort through everything. Um, and the messaging is is not super consistent in terms of where you can find the right information about evacuations or where the fire's located, anything like that. And that's not because people aren't aren't trying. It's just so complex because of how they come about in time and also who's responsible for um, for kind of having authority over them. Um, so if you if you search, you know, Twitter, for instance, um, when there's hurricanes, you know, there's a couple of of um, hashtags or, or, or handles that that kind of solidify pretty quickly on, um, you know, it's usually the hurricane name and then the year or something like that. But there's there's usually two or three that you can find but the fires. Um, as you try to look for information it's hard. It's it's a lot harder to find kind of a, a single unified place and message because the incidents are all over the place and happening at the same time and so many parties are involved. Sure. I can I can attest to that firsthand. I have family in California. So earlier this year I was in New England trying to keep up with how close the fires might be to different family members at different houses and I was going on, you know, the San Francisco's newspaper website or another local newspaper or maybe Cal Fire or maybe something else. And it it took a while for me to get to like an authoritative source that had enough information for me to, you know, keep tabs on everything. I can imagine, especially if you were someone that had to react, not someone that's just watching out of concern. It's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, it's definitely complicated. And again, I know that there are people that are aware of that and are working hard to try to figure out ways to, to overcome it. But it's it's a hard problem and it will take a while to come up with something that, that is really great. So I think for now, everybody can just do the best they can. And if, if you're in one of those areas, figure out a couple of different ways to get the information because um, different sources will have different different things to say. As you know, this is a podcast focused on careers. So we're interested in learning about your career and learning about how someone rising in the profession could decide if this, if your career path is the right path that they want to follow in whatever way. So if someone were to be hired in your research department, um, I don't know if you hire anyone coming directly out of school or maybe early career, but what are you looking for in their cover letter um, in a resume, and then maybe in an interview? Those are really good questions. And, and yes, we do hire people straight out of school. Again, we're a small staff, so we don't hire frequently or, or every year, but we do have um, at least one person who came to us directly out of a bachelor's program. I'm trying to think. We had another one who came directly out of a PhD program. So we, we do have kind of um, first career uh, researchers on our staff. Um we're always looking for really good analysis skills. Um, I think, you know, we're not unique there. We, we need people who can um, do analysis of the complicated data that, that we pull in. Um, we're really looking for people who are creative. You know, we're, we're a one-of-a-kind lab. That's, that's kind of our trademark. We, the, the things that we do in our lab, we do them specifically because nobody else does them. So in order to be successful, you got to have an open mind. We're not looking for people to come in and say, let's just repeat all the same studies and, and tests that other labs have done. There's a, a distinctive reason why we chose to build 
this lab to do things differently, to fill in those gaps. So you got to be creative in um, coming up with ideas of things to do and then also how to do them. Um, but again, it's okay to ask for some mechanical engineering help to be able to do it. From a resume perspective, um, Anybody that has, you know, evidence of existing research, either as an undergrad or a grad student, um, kind of shows that they're used to the rigor of a research environment. Um, internships are always a, a, a positive when we're looking at a resume. Um, we really want people who are okay to get their hands dirty and, and play different roles in a project. So we're not on our staff, again, we're, we're still small, even though we've grown. So we're not looking for somebody who only wants to come in and just analyze the data. You got to be willing to get out there and help build pieces of equipment or, or put your hands on specimens to figure out, you know, what we're going to do next um, to help with the instrumentation. You know, a, a typical wind test for us has over 400 pieces of sensors and instrumentation. Um, you got to be willing to, to dig in if some of them aren't functioning or if, you know, we need help installing them or testing them or um, fixing them. Um, so we want people who uh, are willing to do a variety of jobs, even if it's not your core job. Um, you got to have that flexibility and that desire to help the team as a whole. Um, in a lot of ways, we're also looking for people who are passionate about what we do. We're small. We're a nonprofit. Um, you know, this is not the kind of place where you're going to come and just coast and, you know, get a big old paycheck. You know, that's, that's not who we are. So you have to want to do the work that we do. You have to want to uh, make a difference in the lives of people. Um, and, and overwhelmingly, our staff resonates with that. The vast majority of them say that they work for our company because they want to make people's lives better. Um, so we really look for people who deeply resonate with that kind of goal. Well, I hope your research unit continues to find these sorts of people and that these sort of people continue to find you and that our listeners would be inspired nonetheless, even if they go in a different direction or with a different branch of insurance research that that you've given them some great advice. So Tanya, before we end the podcast, we always ask our guests one last fun question that is off topic, not related to meteorology. As a local from Kansas, what do you think people should do if they go there? How should they experience the culture in Kansas? That's a really good question. So coming from um, the University of Kansas, if you ever get a chance to go to Allen Fieldhouse and watch a basketball game, uh, I mean, that's that's something you got to do. Um, when I moved back to Kansas to go to college, um, you know, I'd moved from the East Coast, so I didn't know anybody. Um, I didn't have any friends. Um, you know, the first couple of weeks of school were, were a little bit lonely as I was trying to get settled in and, and meet people. But going to the first basketball game just kind of flipped a switch. Um, that environment is so electric and so um, so unique. Um, there's no place like it. It's definitely, definitely worth doing. Um, Lawrence has uh, the what, what is now Free State Brewery. It was the first brewery uh, in the state of Kansas to come back um, after prohibition. So um, definitely always check that place out if you're looking for a good beer, but also really good food. Um, that's a, an excellent place to go. Um, Kansas has a really strong history in the aviation industry. So I was 
I was born in Wichita, um, which has lots of ties um, to aviation, um, Boeing, uh, Beach. Um, there's there's so many Raytheon. They're, they're, they've all had representation in Wichita at one point. If they don't still, um, a lot of my family members worked in in the airline industry. Um, so there's a lot of fascinating things there, and there's still a lot of jobs there. Honestly, um, from a meteorological standpoint, uh, for for the airline industries, um, building planes, things like that. Um, you know, the Flint Hills of Kansas are, are pretty unique and maybe unexpected. I think everybody thinks that Kansas is just really flat, open wheat fields and it's not. Um, but, um, one of the things that I, I do love most about that part of the country is that there are places where you can see for miles. Um, that is not something that we experience where I live now in South Carolina. You know, there's tons of trees, tons of hills. Um, you can't see five or 10 miles down the road. You can do that in Kansas, but there's also some places where you can see some interesting features like the Flint Hills and Lawrence itself is, um, is beautiful. It's got the giant hill um, where the campus is located, which I used to, to live on. I lived on the top of the hill across from uh, the women's dorms and, and you could just see throughout the entire town. Um, you could see all the landmark buildings. So that was always really cool. Yeah, I actually went to Lawrence on a business trip one time because one of our vendors is out of there. And oh yeah, the printer. <laughs> yeah, Alan, Alan yeah. Press. Yes, and and um, I have to say I loved it. It was so quaint. It was such a cute college town. There was a, a, a nice little uh, old fashioned movie theater, and yes. I was very impressed at how inexpensive the beer was. Coming from Boston, I was like, oh, <laughs> two dollars for a pint of beer. This place is great. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yep, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful town, a wonderful university. I loved my time there. I stayed there for a master's part of it because I, I just really loved the school and I loved the town. Um, it was a, a, a great fit for me the six years I was there. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Tanya, and sharing your work experiences with us. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed talking with you all. We enjoyed it too. That's our show for today. Please join us next time. Rain or shine. Clear Skies Ahead, Conversations About Careers in Meteorology and Beyond is a podcast by the American Meteorological Society. Our show is produced by Brandon Kroos and edited by Peter Trepke. Our theme music is composed and performed by Steve Savoy, and the show is hosted by Rex Horner and Kelly Savoy. You can learn more about the show online at www.ametsoc.org slash clear skies and can contact us at skypodcast at ametsoc.org if you have any feedback or if you would like to become a future guest. 